Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. SoCal's Country Station, 95.1 KFROG. I'm Pepper. This is Spirit of the IE. Celeste Edmonds was raised by drug-addicted parents. The state eventually intervened, separating the family, and Edmonds was adopted into a dysfunctional home where she faced mistreatment from a sadistic mother. Contemplating drastic measures, she ran away, seeking shelter wherever she could until a compassionate woman extended a helping hand, offering her a safe and nurturing environment filled with love and teaching her that it's never too late to find home. She recounts her story in a new memoir called Garbage Bag Girl. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Celeste, tell us about the title Garbage Bag Girl. What does that title refer to? And are you the garbage bag girl? I am the garbage bag girl. The picture on the front of the book is me at seven years old. It was one of the only two pictures I had of me as a child. So options were limited, but it's very telling when you look at it, kind of who I was, you know, what I looked like. And the Garbage Bag Girl title evolved. Really, it started out with this concept of this thing that happens with children when sometimes they're in child welfare is that they move around with their items in a garbage bag. We certainly have made a lot of progress towards that. And in our programs, in 28 years, a child has never left with their items in a garbage bag. But for me, and especially the time I was in child welfare, that was much more common. And then the title evolved more into this concept of how we view ourselves as garbage and how we view ourselves as unworthy of love, which ultimately translates into, you know, a lack of self-love. So it really has much more evolved into the way we view ourselves when we are in trauma that's not healed and transitions that uh, never make us feel stable. And so that's really where the title landed. You survived some horrendous things, but today you're the director of a charity that has helped tens of thousands of children already. Why do you think you turned out well while so many others don't? Well, I think at a couple of opportunities, one, when I was writing the book, I was able to interview my aunt that uh, was my biological father's sister. And I asked her, because I often got asked why I seemed to be doing better than sometimes, you know, my siblings, my biological siblings. And I asked her if there was a difference, certainly in the way we were raised. And she said that for the first 18 months, I was really raised by her and her grandmother, which is my father's mother, we lived with them. And she recalls, even though being in high school, you know, shopping me around on her hip and taking me to all the places she went to and waking up with me in the night and feeding me my bottle and really being kind of my caretaker during that time. And I think now that I've learned a lot about brain development and the first year 
that's super critical for an infant. That's when they mainly learn to attach developmentally to another human. And I did receive a lot of that up front. And then my mom became pregnant with my sister and we moved and addiction and outside influences and things started really, you know, impacting that. And honestly, as a starting point, I don't think my siblings got that, to be really honest with you. And I also think, uh, well, I know we were all born addicts. And I was the first child, so mine was the least severe. My sister is the middle child, and hers was, you know, a little worse. And then by the time my brother was born, he's seven years younger than me, he barely survived. I talk about it in the book where my sister and I sneak into the ICU and we visit him in the incubator as often as we can because we didn't think he would live. He was so small. He was so addicted. And a lot of times when children are born with fetal alcohol syndrome or some of the other addictions that they're born with, they're inherently predispositioned to have those factors really influence their life. And that is what has happened to my brother. He is very much an addict. He has a lot of, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a relationship because of that. And I think that, you know, for some of those reasons, I had a little bit of a better start than they did. But I also have a very forward-thinking mentality and a level of optimism that some people don't have that things will be okay even when you don't know how. There's a faith that I have that that is going to work out, and eventually I will land on and find the plan to make that happen. And I certainly know that, you know, everybody doesn't have that resiliency skill, that optimism. What would you like those whose job it is to protect children to learn from your book? So working in the nonprofit sector now, I have gained such a great appreciation for the very difficult work that child welfare workers have to do. I can't even honestly imagine being a caseworker and how difficult that would be. It's a very complicated system. It's very big and lots of restrictions that are placed on abilities for them to make decisions, especially quickly. There's a lot of factors that have to go into it, and I understand they're designed for safety purposes, but I think what happens is, first of all, children aren't meant to be raised by a system. They're meant to be raised by people and a village and a community, and I think when we fall into a system and I think, oh my gosh, there's half a million, up to 500,000 children in the foster care system at any given time, you naturally become a number. You know, you're just, you're a placement or you're a disruption or you're the terms that are used in child welfare. And I would like to just always remind people that are in these situations of making big decisions for these people that they still are children and they still feel very much a lack of their voice being heard and they absolutely still want everything that other children get, which is what we try to do in our nonprofit work. And I just think it's important to keep reminding them of that, that we're human beings and we're young children and young adults that are very much sitting around certainly waiting for resources and waiting for opportunities, but we're also waiting for the general things that everybody wants, love and empathy and small acts of kindness that make a very big difference in our lives. So that would be my biggest takeaway for them. Why did you decide to write your book at this time? And was it difficult to relive those experiences? Very much so. When I first started working for our founder and my co-author of the book, Richard Paul Evans, 30 years ago as a personal assistant, he had just written the little green book, The Christmas Box, which is based on the loss of a child. And during that time of writing it, our state and many, many other states 
happened to be going through a federal lawsuit by the National Center for Youth Law in California for the mistreatment of children. There were several states that were being sued for children dying in the foster care system, and ours was one of them. And he and his wife came, you know, made a lot of money off of that book, and that's when he decided to be an author, and they wanted to give back most of that money. And so he knew my history and my background, so we held a child welfare conference in our state, and we had this very unique opportunity of, you know, really asking, hey, we have this very difficult situation in our state right now, and we have this really wonderful opportunity that Richard and his wife, Carrie, were willing to step up and help with. What's the single best thing we can do for abused children? And we realized that kids were just being placed, like a police officer told us, in the first place that some first person is going to answer the phone, which means there's no time for you know any proper due diligence, certainly on how long they're going to be in that placement and do they need to be there? Can they go home under a safety plan with the state or is there another family member that can take them or do they need to go into foster care? And if they do, what does that plan need to look like? So our shelters, the Christmas box houses named after the book, allow time for that to happen. Kids stay with us age zero to 18 for an average of two weeks to a month. And that you know, does allow that time to happen. But I'll tell you, shelter care is not what makes us unique. What makes us unique is that we take the child all the way, sometimes up to age 22, depending on the situation, um, and we keep siblings together because of that. We're not limited on licensing standards that only allow us to take through the age of 12. We take the whole child. So we keep about a 1,000 siblings together every year between our three locations. And I'll tell you from a perspective of being raised in it, when you've lost everything you have, all of your belongings, your uncles, your cousins, your aunts, your grandparents, everything has been taken from you. Our ability to keep siblings together is the only thing we have left to give them as an opportunity to hold on to something that they can connect back to with their biological families, which is statistically the best thing we can do for their outcomes. So that's one reason that you know we're unique. The other is that we try to bring all services under one roof to limit transitions for children. So whether it's education, dental care, well, child care visits, managing medications, all that is brought under one roof as much as possible so that they don't have to keep you know being further transitioned all the time. You co-wrote your book, Garbage Bag Girl, with Richard Paul Evans, who has 46 New York Times bestsellers and eight movies. How did this collaboration come about? So working for him and becoming friends, first of all, after working for him, you know, his wife and I were even pregnant at the same time when I was having my second child. And I really had this great opportunity of of being with them for a long time and seeing, you know, being close to them, which built a tremendous amount of trust. And for me to be able to write my story definitely required that. When I decided to be very, very vulnerable and write about things I've never even talked about with anybody, I really needed someone that could be very tender with that and certainly hold it very close to their heart, but also know how to help me write it. And so, yes, the fact that he has written 46 New York Times bestselling novels certainly does not hurt when you need someone that takes a very clunky, messy situation and needs to help you make that flow when it's very emotional for you. So he's very good at that. He was very sensitive to the topics, and he really helped me better describe to somebody how I was feeling. So I feel very, very blessed to had him on my in, in my court. Have things in the child welfare system changed since you were a child? Yes, there have been many, many changes. 
it still surprises me in 40 years how much has not changed, but there definitely is progress, and that's good. Automation is better. So when I decided to write my book, I went back to the state to pull my records. I wanted to see if there was an original birth certificate or records of me being in the state system at all or records of me being in these drug rehabilitation centers that I was in. And nobody had anything about me, not even, I don't even have pictures. So it, except the two I referenced earlier. So it's, it's as if I was dropped on the planet at age nine into this super abusive family. And there was no, there's no record of me existing at all, except some connections I have personally with my biological family members. And it was definitely another reminder of being that garbage bag girl and not mattering to anybody. So when I reached out to our state partners to kind of elevate that request and see, you know, if they could help, they confirmed very apologetically that that was not an option because when I was in child welfare, I was basically a manila file folder and therefore records were only kept for about 10 years. So if you were in the child welfare system in the 80s or 90s, there would be no record of you at all. Now, that is automated. Children's records are kept for 99 years. It also helps if you were like me and you moved from state to state and you needed to get like your shots done again to get re-enrolled in school or you, you needed records pulled. Nothing was ever found for me and I would have to start over if I moved to another state. So, you know, those kind of changes have certainly changed. I think we also have more prevention services. When somebody calls, for instance, a state today, human services, and they want to report child abuse, which they're mandated to do by law, I think there's a misconception around, oh, me calling means I'm making a decision whether, you know, this child or these children are going to be removed from their home, and I'm the one that's making this big call on what's going to happen next in the life of these children, and you're, you're not. What you're doing is, is being responsible to report your concern. But really what happens from there is that states have a, a much better ability today to create a program for in-home services if they're able to validate that it is safe for the child to be in the home and there is a safety plan that can be associated with that in terms of you know maybe parenting classes or classes around environmental cleanliness. You know, there's just random things that come up that sometimes parents just need to learn how to do. And sometimes those calls and reporting structures create simple solutions for families that they didn't even know were an option for them. So a lot of those kind of things have changed, for sure, to allow better outcomes for children. I think the scary part is that I think back about why child welfare, you know, even became a thing and why man mandates happened. And child abuse was very much a generational issue. So I maybe hurt my children because my parents did that to me and then their parents did that to them and then their parents before that did that to them and that problem has perpetuated. Now that is way less likely because people have been retrained. They know better. It isn't just the way we've done things. Now we have really big issues. We have drug addiction. We have big mental health issues. We combine that with issues in our economy. With, you know, we have a, a housing shortage where some people just can't, frankly, get their children back because they don't have a place to live, yet nobody is able to even help them with that. There aren't housing vouchers or housing available to them, not because they have poor parenting skills. They might just be in a, in a very tough situation and not have a place to live, and yet we can't help them do that. So the reasons 
are uniquely different today, and the kids we see now stay longer in the system. They're much more difficult to place. Behavioral issues are very different. Mental health challenges with parents make it very difficult for them to manage themselves, let alone their children. So that's, the, to me, the biggest shift is you have more with bigger issues, even though, you know, child welfare as a system is really trying to offset some of that balance. And I, I just think you can't keep up with it that way, even with policy, which takes about an average of 10 years to change any policy in most systems at all, especially child welfare. It takes a very long time to do that. So, yeah, that's a lot there to unpack, I know. But... Um, <laughs> Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. How many children are in child welfare and how common do you think your experiences were? So we know at a given time we have close to a half a million children in foster care. The number certainly fluctuates, but on average we, we typically always have that. And I think there are certainly kids that I meet that have had good outcomes. But unfortunately, most of the kids that I meet, their life wasn't better when they were put into state custody. And that's really hard because it's even hard for me to say because I do know you know, as I mentioned, being in the nonprofit sector that, and having these partners in child welfare, it's not that there aren't very kind, very well-intended, good people. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is there's, it's very complicated. It's a big system with a lot of challenges. And so where I think people can help on a positive note is our nation is very philanthropic, and we have a very giving society for the most part. And we have a lot of nonprofits. And nonprofits really fill a gap 
where we don't have funding for state services. Nonprofits really step up to do that. And nonprofits are supported by communities. So I think if people in each of their states were to reach out and look into what other nonprofits are doing to support their state and their child welfare gaps, it's a much faster way to actually help the children in the system than to try to think we can quickly change policy. Policy is important, but I think from you know a day-to-day standpoint of just children being in the system, that is a much more effective way to help in the shorter term. I'm speaking with Celeste Edmonds, author of Garbage Bag Girl. This book is getting some great reviews. Do you think it's hard for people to read a story about such serious abuse? I do. I think, you know, the book is, is graphic in the beginning. I always tell people, when you start it, make sure you can get to the end because that's when it's, you know, it's hopeful. And it is hopeful. That, you know, my story did end up on a positive note, but I was an adult and I had to get there. But it is hard for people to read. I think think it can trigger someone that maybe has had their own stuff. And I also think that it's a tough conversation to have to talk about, but very necessary that it actually still happens. It isn't something that used to happen. It isn't something that might happen. It's some, these are things that do happen to people in general, but more relevant, it's how it happens to people in, you know, kids and child welfare. And we as a, as a system are the ones in charge of removing them. So I think we have to keep having the conversation around doing better and what can we do differently and what do we need to change. And that conversation just cannot stop happening. One of the best-selling books of the last century was A Child Called It by Dave Pelzer. How similar is your book to his? So at the time, his, and he's a a good, good friend of mine. I was fortunate to have him endorse the book, so I'm very, very grateful for that. But his story is very, very tragic. You know, when he wrote it, he was, that story was considered at the time it was written, one of the most severe child abuse cases in the history of California. And when I met him and we talked about similarities, you know, in our stories, they're similar, you know, in that we're both in abusive situations, but they are uniquely different. He was abused by his biological mother in the same house for a lot of years until someone in his school stepped up and took a look at how long he's been coming to he'd been coming to school with bruises and how long there had been signs of malnutrition and somebody people had continually gone to the home but he would under his mom's authority make up lies you know to excuse why that had happened and why the abuse was happening so that all happened in his home with a biological mother the unique difference in our stories is most of my abuse happened after being removed from my biological home and entering the child welfare system so some of our situations are similar but mostly it's different you know, from that perspective, he has the biological mother component and mine is a system component. But Your book has some fairly graphic parts. Why did you choose to include them? Because in working with my trauma therapist, she helped me really recognize that if, if I was going to be vulnerable and tell my story, it would be really important to share most of the details. There were a lot more details we actually originally put in the book that we did decide to take out, and it still is graphic even now. But I really wanted to be as authentic as possible. So, you know, I also talk about bullying in the book, but me being the bully, not just being bullied myself. And I, I really felt like it was important to give the best picture of that time in my life as possible so that people would really understand 
without a question what that means and what that looks like, what that feels like in order to have conversations around what is happening with children in child welfare. If someone suspects that a child is being abused, what should they do? By federal law, they need to report it. They need to contact their human services office in their area and report that. And that's what I was referencing earlier is really it also opens up an opportunity for many families to get help that they really need to actually keep their children. How can we identify children in the foster care system and how can we support them? Well, we can't if if they're not willing to disclose it. And for many children like me, I didn't want people to know. I really was trying to have some level of normalcy as much as possible. So even if I slept on the school bleachers and then came in and the next morning and took a shower and went into drill team, for instance, that was very intentional and in not wanting people to know that I was in this very broken environment. And mostly because I didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me. So if you do know somebody that is in foster care or in any way, you know, just in the child welfare system in general. Empathy is one thing, but what we don't want is people to feel sorry for us. I think what we want is people to empower us that we can accomplish and do the same things as kids that are not. I was constantly told if somebody knew I was in a foster home, I was excused that I didn't have to do something, and I was told that it wasn't even expected of me to do that, what other kids could do, because... Obviously, it was, you know, I was in a tough place, and people just continue to excuse me all the time that I didn't have to do things, and we're not helping kids certainly function or become the best version of themselves by excusing them. We don't want to excuse bad behavior, and we don't want to excuse a tough life by saying you can't, you know, accomplish. I wouldn't tell a child with no legs he couldn't play basketball. There's a lot of ways that that can still happen today. And yet we tell foster kids they don't have to do things very often as if they're not capable of doing it. And that that's just not useful. I'm speaking with Celeste Edmonds, author of the memoir Garbage Bag Girl. How would you like us to get your book? So if you want to learn more about uh, me and the work that we do, please visit my website, CelesteEdmonds.com. And there is also a link on there on how to purchase the book. It's also on Amazon and it is available on audio. I have a lot of people ask me that. I did record it myself. It's my story. It was a tough couple of days, but we did it and I'm very happy we did that. And so it is that it's also available on Amazon. Thank you so much for speaking with us today and thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. 
Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 